um, being young, being a teenager and going to church camp or youth camp? Did everybody get to do that at some point in their lives? Anybody? Looks like nobody. Anybody? People. I can't thank you, Donnie. I can't hear you. I'm all the way up here. You're all the way down there for the love of Pete. But I do. I, I, I remember going um, when every year we had, in our, I grew up Nazarene, so we had a district and we had, you know, camp meeting, which was everybody for like two weeks. We had different youth camps. We had a winter retreat. We had all these down in actually in Ripley, West Virginia. That's where we uh, did that once our, at Cedar Lakes, once our, uh, we had a, um, campground on Morse Road in Columbus, but it, you know, it, it eventually shut down. They sold it and we started doing everything in, in Ripley for most things. Now they have one in Logan, but I remember, um, feeling like whether I had or not, I remember feeling like I had experienced God in such a powerful way at those camps when I was a kid. And then I would get back home, go back to school, back to work, back to everyday life. And it felt like I lost God. You know, like I, I, at least what I mean is I didn't feel him like I did when I was at camp. Nothing changed in my everyday life. Have you ever felt anything like that in your life where you had what you believed at least was, was a, you really experienced, you thought the presence of God, you were with his people or something like this. You experienced a tremendous time of worship or communion with God somewhere very special and um, returned to normal life only to feel like God had not come with you. It was just so different. Um, we see a flow somewhat like this in Ecclesiastes. Uh, as a few chapters ago, if you remember, he began to ponder oppression, unrighteousness in the world. But then in chapter 5, he walks into the house of God in the midst of all this. He walks, which for Solomon was the temple. He uh, showed us how God intends to meet with us there. Shows us the things that may be getting in the way of that. But then here... In the second part of chapter 5 and on to chapter 6, he walks back out of the temple. Of course, you and I walk out of buildings today where we've gathered with the house of God on earth. And, and he walks right back into immediately oppression. At least that's what he does in the text. He picks it right back up. The world as it is under the sun didn't change into heaven while Solomon was in the sanctuary. Gathering with God's people in our buildings is, is not a lucky charm that makes the bad things of the world go away. We have to return to life as it is under the sun. The preacher takes us from God's house now back out into the world again. Think of Solomon standing outside the temple, surveying the world as people go in and out. Even though Jesus has brought us into God's presence and we rejoice and worship because of this, when we gather with his people, evil still remains Human beings still have to figure out how to live under the weight of it all. We taste God's presence and then we go back into a world that's bent on souring it. Lazarus, think about Lazarus for a minute. Raised from the dead in John chapter 11, receiving death threats by John chapter 12. This is the way of the world. So it could begin to beg the question, or maybe sometimes we feel like this, why even gather with God's people in the first place then? Why even long for the presence of God? If, if going to church isn't going to change the world, what's the point of going? Why gather with God's house in this building if when we come back out of the doors, we still have to lock ours at night, right? Those of us who know the Lord do not have immunity from the world under the sun. So how do we maintain a sense of God even when we're not among His people? 
when we're not in the places where we sense Him the most, right? The Bible's revelation that there's no immunity from the world gives us at least part of an answer to that question since it affirms our experiences of loss. But that fact, we don't have immunity from the world, doesn't give us any real hope for life here, does it? I think Solomon is carving a pathway to the rest of the answer to that in this text also. Immunity from life as it is under the sun doesn't exist. But, as I read in one commentary, intimacy with God and well-being do exist in this world. Even among all the evils of the fallen world, God gives us the opportunity to enjoy Him all the days that we live. God doesn't just meet with us in the amazing places, the conferences, the concerts, the big things the wonderful times of gathering with God's people. He is present with us when we're in the world, when we're living our daily, ordinary, mundane lives and moments under the sun. When our hearts are preoccupied with God and enjoying His daily gifts, rather than always having to accumulate more, He fills us with joy that keeps us from sinking into despair while we live under the sun. So let me pray and we'll begin. That's the... That's the the trajectory of this text. It's very interesting to me. Let's pray. Father, I ask tonight that you would open our hearts now to receive your word. Give us wisdom, Father. May your Holy Spirit fill us and enlighten us and illuminate the text for us. Illuminate the meaning you breathed into it, Father. Please help me bring that out. Nothing more, nothing less. Please watch over my soul. Watch over my mouth. God, help everyone who hears. May Jesus enamor us in such a way tonight that we are transformed from the next, from this degree of glory to the next. We ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5. Beginning there, he writes, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For... The high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So again, as he said, he picks his theme back up from all the way back in 316 about oppression in the world, unrighteousness. Now particularly, how this uniquely affects the poor. He's asking us, what are then the evils that gathering with God's people as the church still won't change, and therefore make sensing God under the sun so difficult. I think that's what he's exploring here. Solomon was, remember, because Ecclesiastes is so earthy, we can forget this. Solomon was the ruler of Israel. He knew firsthand how power and authority worked, how it affected the world, different classes of people. Solomon knew the sources of oppression and the violation of justice and righteousness. But notice what he says. Do not be amazed at the matter. Oppression and injustice in the world under the sun should not surprise us. Why not? He answers that for, because, he's saying, the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. So he says, don't be surprised that the poor are misused. Why? Because people in power have to please their superiors. So when they're put into a position, people in power of helping the poor or trying to make money for or tow the company line, it puts them into a tension point and people are normally going to choose themselves 
when they choose who to serve. They have to report to the one over them and so on upwardly. So there's an institutional power structure in the world, always has been, that keeps people in check and they may not be able to do or will be too cowardly to do what actually needs to be done so that people like the poor are actually served and not oppressed. So of course he's saying there's going to be oppression and injustice. Everyone is working and toiling to get their piece of the pie. That's his point here. Everyone wants to get rich, so the world is cutthroat. And, it's, and the poor in particular will suffer in this. And I, I think his point in verse 9, it's a strange phrase. It's hard to pin down exactly what he means, but I think he's making this universal point, which, by the way, verse 9 here, as far as I know, is the only place where he says something in the world is gain in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's very interesting. It's actually gain for people under the sun then, in light of verse 8, anywhere where a ruler, in spite of all this greed, in spite of all the oppression that results, is still committed to productivity and to a harvest for people and work rather than laziness. That's instructive for us. It always has been. At least, In other words, at least in verse 9, there's still a GDP, right? I think that that's what he's driving at here. In Israel... Cultivated fields within a community where there was just and fair labor meant in the system God set up that the poor, the widow, and the stranger were cared for while the worker and the fruit of his labor were also protected. Israel certainly knew what the opposite was like, didn't they? They certainly did. They knew what it was to have leaders who used whips, uh, who gave them no straw and still demanded more bricks in less time. If anybody knew about the oppression of the poor and of slaves, it was... Israel. Now, notice where the text goes in light of this, because this is very interesting. Notice where it goes in light of verses about toiling and power and having to please those who are over you and how it affects the world. Look at what flows naturally from recognizing that about the world in the next verses. Money and possessions then are inseparably mixed up with all the evils that make it hard for us to enjoy this life. All right, it's it's a It's a hamster wheel. Don't be amazed at this, he says. Well, how do you enjoy what you have? If Solomon keeps driving at this, how do you enjoy what you have when this is happening all around you and when unless you're in power, you're going to be a victim of it or under it your whole life? Don't be amazed at this. Look at verse 10. It's right where he goes. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So this is at least part of the origin of the New Testament reality that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, even the oppression of the poor. 1 Timothy 6.10 But notice... How the love of money is a natural outflow of toil. The more responsibility, the more money we get from our jobs, the harder it is to sleep. The more anxiety. Isn't that interesting? Most of us want more money so we can quit worrying all the time. Right? And the Bible says the more you go after, the more anxiety you're going to have. It's it's just funny how the heart works. We were, um, I'm always telling you about the mega millions, the big billboard coming out of Elm Grove, going west. I was so it was it was down to it was 526 million or something last week. It's 56 million today, 
and or, or uh, was yesterday, and I thought, man, you're only going to clear about 20 million. You know, it's just it's so, <laughs> yeah, that would stink. If I just had an extra 20 million, what a bummer. So worry doesn't go away. Isn't that that's just an amazing biblical revelation? Worry doesn't go away. More just brings a different kind of anxiety. Doesn't eliminate it. Now you're worried about different things. Now you have to worry about losing everything you have. Or you have to watch other people enjoy it, right? Bigger houses mean more bills. It means more people to pay. Now you have to have a budget for landscaping. Maybe you, you hire a butler, you hire a chef. You know, if you're extremely rich, you, all these, all this money going out. The, the more we have, the harder it is to what? The Bible says sleep. The laborer in verse 12, however, the company man busting his tail to do a good day's work, and he isn't the CEO, at least that man, even though he's probably making tons less money, at least he goes home knowing he accomplished his task today and doesn't have $6 million to worry about not losing, right? At least there's that. The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. That's true. What a world. What a world. Beloved, the full stomach of the rich, which we, which we all would like to have. The Bible says, yeah, you, you won't be able to sleep with that. Look at 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those, sorry, I lost my place here. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son but he has nothing in his hand. So Solomon um, brings up a scenario, right? An example, or maybe he's aware of something. He ponders a father who toiled, toiled for more, gained wealth, but then lost his money in a, apparently a bad business venture to the hurt of his own family. He has offspring, which is such a desired blessing in Israel, but he has nothing in his hand. That is, he has nothing to give. It's all gone because he, weighed, because he made what we could even presume was just an honest business mistake, a bad venture. Maybe it was a gambling type thing, but it doesn't read that way. We pick it up in 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came. It sounds like Job. And shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. I don't mean he's talking about Job. I mean it's the same verbiage here. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. This happens in our world all the time, and it's a grievous evil, Solomon says. It's nauseating, is what he means by this darkness surrounds a man's life because he made a bad business decision. After laboring and toiling, people like this end up with no ability to even help their children. So all the work, everything they put in, they make a mistake. It all goes away. How does one discern God when every single day you live? Because maybe something bad like this has happened to you in your toil when you're vexed and nauseated and embittered. When you realize that you've toiled for the wind as he says, behold, Solomon says in verse 18, or that reads like so to me. Look at 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting 
is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and positions and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So he returns to this repeated mantra we've seen so often in Ecclesiastes so far. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. But now, with that admonition, he's counseling us as a pastor, as a preacher here. He's walking through in this whole passage different predicaments people may face, grieving with them. He's grieved by it, the vexation of all of it. And as he does that, he returns again to this idea of recovering the simplicity and paradise of Eden. He's saying, beloved, the people he reigns over, enjoy your lot. In other words, enjoy what you already have. What a gift it is from God, he says. If you have food and drink and work to do, or even a spouse maybe, and a lot to enjoy all of it with, God gives the power to enjoy that as a gift. So, Keep that in your head, that that's a gift, the ability to enjoy just what you have. The love of money is the opposite of this. He's making the point. It makes us want more, makes us feel like no matter how much we have, it's not enough. This is the curse at work in us. right? The, the, remember, the world is built, futility is built into it. So we're going to feel this. The more we get, the more we worry. Even a full stomach won't provide us with rest because a full stomach doesn't last. Solomon is inviting us into a way of life where we see whatever we have as the gift of God is his way, I think, of protecting us to some degree from the hurt that living under the sun in a world such as this might cause us. Why is it so good to accept our lot and rejoice in our toil? Because in verse 20, doing so automatically puts the eyes of our hearts on our provider, on God, so that the days of vexation and sickness and anger are buffeted by His grace, by His presence. Let God preoccupy you, and the endless turning of the sun will begin to blur as the thing that defines your existence, he's saying. This means when you read 18, 19, and 20, we have to realize It means that God is just as present with us as he would be at any great, wonderful time of worship in just the food and drink and work that we have and enjoy every single day. He's there. He's present. Think then when you read that 18 through 20 of how delightful even the smallest things in your life will become because you realize that he is there also, not just at youth camp, not just at the big worship concert and think about how difficult life will be on the other side of this if we constantly pass by the smallest joys wondering where God is he's in the coffee and he's in the orange juice and he's in the Sunday drive and he's in the good book and he's in the warm bath and the apple pie and the song we love that takes us away for a few minutes God is present in these things giving us the power to enjoy him they're his gift to us they're him telling us look I'm with you I'm with you. This is found in the simplest things. 
Right? God is trying to tell us, I'm with you all the time. All the time. Where are you, God? Well, I'm in the bread on your table. I'm in the meal you have with your family. I'm right there. Think of the Bible's terminology in the book of Ruth, for example. A great example. How did the Lord visit his people? With bread. Right? With food for them in famine. We've probably been trained to think of God visiting only in like terms of the prophets. So we think of it in in big ways. Power, revival. We need the wisdom literature of scripture to realize we could be sitting at a table with bread or with coffee and good people to drink it with and, and miss the fact that God is there also. In this gift, God is the one who gives us food to begin with. What a blessing. What a blessing. That this Again, I know I've probably thought about this before and it just comes off as silly, but God is there in a, in a perfectly cooked steak. He's, he's present. Beloved, that's a gift. What a, what a gift. We want to be used of God again. We think in such grand terms. We want to be used of God to turn the tide of a generation. And there's a farm somewhere with a farmer in Bethlehem and a young woman and he loves her. And Ruth, God is there as they go about their lives. And, and King David comes from such things in the book of Ruth. Sometimes God visits with a judge, a ruler, a savior. And other times he meets with a widow on a farm. Right? The seed of a woman didn't just go through palaces. It went through farms. It went through everyday life. God delights in the food and in the drink and the good work that he gives to his children. That's how he created it to be. God didn't make peace with him or the awareness of his presence dependent on achievement, right? Dependent on production. He made it, he, He's saying, I'm, I'm with you when you enjoy your dinner. I'm with you when you do your work every day, right? No, no, no matter what it is. And apparently... It doesn't get much better than this. The Bible's trying to tell us in 19 and 20. So we ought to be praying as a result of this, Lord, give us the power to accept our lot. Give me the ability to do this and to rejoice in what you've given to me. So if you find yourself without much in this world as a follower of Jesus, it's not a loss as the world would define it. Right? That that picture that so many of us have seen, I'm, I'm sure we have, we had it in my house of the older gentleman with his hands folded and the little bowl of soup and bread and his glasses, I think, in a Bible maybe on the table. But that's, beloved, that's life. That's what God intended. God is present with that man in the painting, whether it's, I don't know the story of it, but that's where he is just as much as he is when we gather here, right? In the alternative way of life, Where joy can only come from getting more, we're learning, there's only darkness. Only darkness. Right? Look at 1 and 2 of chapter 6. He says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun. So he's pondering these things. And it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. 
but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. So we're very clearly meant to read 6, 1, and 2 in light of 5, 18 through 20. 6, 1, and 2 are the opposite of what's happening in 5, 18 through 20. What we have, whether little or much, what all humans have, whether little or much, is the gift of God. See what Solomon is telling us here? The sovereignty of God is the grid through which we have to see all reality. God is always working. He's always present. And notice this, the ability to enjoy what you have, whether it's little or much, is in the hand of God also. Who would have thought that? Man is unable to enjoy what he has unless God grants it to him. That's amazing. Whether the rich enjoys his wealth or the poor enjoys his little is all determined by God. Solomon is inviting us to realize then what God desires for his children in 519 through 20 as opposed to what he will do to cause people to grope for him in the darkness He'll make it impossible for people to enjoy what they get with more wealth. Notice that man in 6, 1 and 2 did get everything he wanted. But God didn't give him the joy to enjoy it. And equally difficult in the world, as the one who is impoverished, is the one who has everything the world offers, but still has no joy with God in it. Solomon uses two examples here to show us the emptiness of the wealthy who don't know God and can't find joy in the good things that God has Given to him, and he uses hyperbole um, in this first analogy to picture a man with an exorbitant amount of kids. We're about to read who lives a long and happy life. So this wealthy man has everything that the people of Solomon's time and place, in particular, valued so highly. But then he says the man has no burial. Look, look at verse three. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. That, that phrase was often used to describe someone who was considered judged and therefore isolated from the worship and the community, that they had no one that loved them enough to, to bury them, to see them through their death. Jesus points out a type of man like this in Luke chapter 12, who stored up his wealth but made no provision for his soul. What Jesus says next reminds us of verse 2. In his parable, when a stranger enjoys a wealthy man's good gifts, right? But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Luke twelve twenty, And Jesus makes his point in twelve twenty one. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Solomon says in the last part of verse 3, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over. So he goes from having tons of kids and everything to living for 2,000 years. It's hyperbole, right? He's just making it as, as clear as he can. Yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. So at first glance, it might seem like Solomon is, is being very callous by not considering the pain of those who have suffered a miscarriage, right? It might also seem he is saying that a stillborn child's soul goes into nothingness and it's just gone. But 
Solomon isn't being cold, and, and he is very interestingly, by the way, he is, he, he's, he's affirming the validity of an unborn child here. Right? But he's using poetry to expose the tragically mistaken thinking of such a man. For those who love wealth, so much so that it's the main thing they pursue throughout their lives, rather than ever being able to find the pleasure from God that God intended by granting them these things that they have, they believe they're more blessed than others. They've achieved more than many people could ever dream. To such a person, in their mind, one that barely got started, never got to attain all these earthly pleasures, like a stillborn child, well, they really missed out. They really missed out on what life is all about. Solomon is turning that view on its head here. He's, he's making us look at it in a different way, a stillborn child. Though a stillborn child, true, never had money or built a home or got to experience travel, music, culture, movies, whatever you want to say, the stillborn child is at rest. Right? It's almost like Solomon puts a premium on that in light of toil. To have rest and to have it with God is one thing the rich man does not possess and cannot find without God. The stillborn child, on the other hand, Solomon is saying, has passed directly into his presence, where, remember, Psalm 16 tells us, is the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. That is why the soul of one who pursues wealth, in verse 3, is not satisfied with life's good things. There's no rest. There's no rest. And that's why they must have more, must find that elusive possession that will finally, they figure, bring satisfaction. For all his wealth, he has no contentment, no rest. So in God's reckoning, we're finding having everything without the gift of God's joy is true poverty. Even a stillborn child possesses that which makes one truly rich, the presence of God. Doesn't it make so much sense then for Jesus to say that it's hard for a rich man to see or even enter the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's obsessed with more on earth. Solomon contrasts those who gain wealth either through oppression, as in the beginning of or the middle of chapter 5, or even honest toil in the middle of chapter 5. He contrasts them, those who gain wealth, with those who find the kind of rest and contentment that is given to one we would say died too early, right? The stillborn child. That kind of rest is revealed where in the peacefulness of sleep that an honest worker has every night, whether he eats little or much, back in 5.12. The wealthy one is up all night because of his wealth and what it takes to keep it. The kind of rest Solomon invites us to, or and Solomon invites us to have is the rest of the one to whom God has given wealth, but who knows God is the source of it and doesn't let it overshadow what is true and lasting accepting our lot, giving thanks for what we have, and finding joy in our daily work. It's there. When we are preoccupied with our God and who He is and what He has given, that we will not much remember the days of our life because God keeps us occupied with joy in our hearts. 5, 18, and 20. That is the place where there's a respite from life under the sun. It, it, God will blur the days, right? Because we're so preoccupied with Him and what we have in front of us that come from Him for us to enjoy. There, beloved, even under the sun, can God and a human being enjoy each other's company. 
These are the ones who believe the words of 5, 10, and 11. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. How much clearer could it be? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Rest for our souls, contentment and joy have nothing to do with how much or how little we gain. Because of this, there is hope for those that only have a little. It's God who gives respite to the oppressed or to the poor or to those who make bad business decisions or the ordinary worker, so to speak, the laborer, to enjoy life and fellowship with God. Pick up chapter 6 and verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also, the wandering of the appetite, is vanity and a striving after wind. The scripture reveals that our appetites cannot be satisfied. So why would we keep pursuing more? The Bible tells us no matter what you get, you will not be satisfied. The Bible tells us why our hearts remain so empty and restless. In that sense, the sense Solomon is speaking of here, the wise has no advantage over the fool, the rich no advantage over the poor, Both lack the ability to find satisfaction in the things of the world. One has them, wants more. One has nothing, wants more. They both want the same thing. There will be no rest, no contentment. Listen one more time to verse 9. This is a massive statement. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This proverb. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The wandering of the appetite, the insatiable desire for more and for wealth to meet our needs and satisfy our souls is vanity and a striving after wind. In other words, it yields nothing. Nothing but the wind. Wisdom says, from heaven says, that what we have right in front of us is better than everything we wish that we did. And our hearts remain broken and restless because we refuse to believe this. Ray LaMontagne in his beautiful song, Empty, sang this line. I love this. I never learned to count my blessings. He's singing about looking at the woman that he loves and watching her walk through their, their backyard. And he says, I never learned to count my blessings. I choose instead to dwell in my disasters. Even the world knows verse 9 is true. He's looking at the woman that he loves. She's beautiful to him. And he just says, man, I, I, I never learned to count the blessings of what's right in front of me. I choose to dwell in my disasters and the things I didn't get that I don't have, right? that I wish I did. Even the world then knows Ecclesiastes 6, 9 is the truth. It's, 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 it's not something people would debate if they were being honest. Jesus fulfills all this teaching when he exposes our treasures by putting them into two categories, only two in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, treasures that rust and treasures that don't. That's all there are. That's all there is. Sorry. When Jesus tells us 
that no one can serve two masters. And remember, the context is namely that we cannot serve God in money. He's inviting us to the master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. The insatiable desire for more makes it too hard to see God right beside of us in the ordinary of every day. But, beloved, He's there. Can, when you look at this passage, can you hear Solomon's words crying out for a Savior as we read? I mean, think about this for a minute. Is Solomon simply saying that rest and peace can come from not being materialistic? Right? That, that if you're a minimalist, that's kind of the big thing now. Becoming a minimalist. I, I, was, um, I keep getting ads for like minimalist things. Uh, there was a minimalist wallet. I saw the other day that is Solomon saying that rest and peace come from not being materialistic and that is our salvation. Right? So, so we, we would exalt in that term, you know, that like, like the monk or the Buddhist that, that has nothing, possesses nothing, that's painted so romantically and, you know, with, with awe in the movies that somebody would be like this. Is that what he's saying? Is it just a moral principle? Be happy with less. Don't crave more. Is that salvation? I think it may be wiser to read Solomon's words of wisdom as law that you and I cannot obey. Because if you think about it here, he's telling you not to crave and telling you that you can't help it at the same time. Right? He's telling you not to desire more and that your appetite will always be wandering. So what is he... I I don't want to make it sound like the meaning isn't in the text. I'm simply saying... What is he really driving at here? I think we can hardly believe this is true to begin with. And I, I, that, that you can actually find God in, in, in I don't mean that in, a, in, a, in a, like a mystical pagan sense. I hope you, that doesn't come through that way. But we don't want to believe this, that God is in what we already have in, in, in the sense of knowing his joy, knowing his contentment, that we don't need more. We don't believe that. I mean, at least not deep down to where, all right, fine, I'll just quit trying to get so much, right? We're, we're, we're never really happy, right? I mean, we, we always want something more, even if it's not a bad thing. That's not really what he's at. The Bible doesn't do that. So the, 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 the Christian life isn't you deciding, do I buy like a, like a 1985 Honda Accord because it still runs, or, or do I buy the 2021 Suburban? You know, that, that's, beloved, that's, it's, it's bigger than that. That's not really what he's going after. The gospel of Jesus is the basis for all of this, or it, it doesn't mean anything. Now, I, I want to talk about this here as we wind it down. Solomon is lamenting the vanity and folly of everything under the sun, all of our toil. Well, guess what the quest to not be materialistic is? Guess what it becomes to not pursue wealth? I'm not going to pursue wealth as a means to my satisfaction. Do you know what you have to do to do that? You have to work. You have to toil to feel that way. Because even the world, in a sense, tries to tell us what Solomon tells us. Right? That's why we have sayings, even from the world, like money can't buy happiness. Uh, you know, you see things all the time, maybe on social media about, uh, you know, if you don't have gratitude for what's right in front of you, things like this, you will never be able to enjoy what you do get. 
Beloved, even the quest to not be materialistic or to be a minimalist becomes toil. It, we're under the sun. So just trying to be simplistic will not save you. Right? It, it, you won't find salvation in not pursuing wealth. Salvation doesn't come from this. It all becomes work, and our work is vanity and a striving after win. If the gospel is not true, Solomon's words are nothing but advice that Buddha might just as well have given to us. The gospel is the basis of all Solomon's wisdom, because here's the thing. Rest for the soul is not found in less. Rest for the soul. We cannot find rest, which means we cannot enjoy our lives if our salvation is not fully paid for. Jesus is the source then of our enjoyment. Jesus is the means of enjoying even God's daily gifts. For what good would it do us to profit the whole world or to remain in poverty and simplicity and still lose our own soul? And if we must stay preoccupied with God to enjoy our lives... How are we going to do that if sin and guilt stand between us? How can we approach Him and have peace apart from Jesus in the gospel? God can't be enjoyed if I don't have Jesus. I have to run from Him. He's holy and I'm not. Right? Jesus Christ came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. A kingdom He tells us, remember, to seek first. And what does He say? Seek first the kingdom of God and what? And all these things, all the things that we genuinely can't live without even, will be added to us anyway. Now, is that not an exclusive call to be preoccupied with God above all other things? Seek first His kingdom. Seek Him. Be preoccupied with Him. We must be preoccupied with our Savior if we're to enjoy life under the sun. And God doesn't intend for us to be miserable. That's not Christianity either. So he's calling us away from that which multiplies despair and makes it worse in a world already cursed with sin and death and futility. Don't add your own greed to that. When our hearts are preoccupied with God and enjoying His daily gifts, rather than always having to accumulate more, he fills us with joy that keeps us from sinking into despair while we live under the sun. Right? Talking about gain. What, what did Paul write to Timothy? In godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6, 6. And the basis of that, Paul goes on to say in verse 7, is the fact that our lives here are a vapor. We brought nothing in. We can't take anything out. You see how... Central, this is to the Christian life. Realizing these things about money and gain. And the fact that we brought nothing in and can take nothing out in Jesus, we find is not a cause for despair. Now that I know I don't have to lament that, I can't take any of this with me. In Jesus, beloved, that's good news. Very good news. It's an implicit promise that we will have all that we need and more than we could wish for in Him, in the presence of God Himself, in the face of Jesus Christ. There we won't even need the Son, John tells us in Revelation. What a thought. 
What a thought, considering living under the sun in Ecclesiastes. So practice now, in a sense, is what Solomon's inviting us into. Enjoy his closeness to you in a good dinner, right? In a good job, in good friends. Good food is such a gift. I love it. I love it, right? (laughs) Good food is a gift. A good dinner is a gift. A good job, good friends. Last night, I, just, I thought this was really sweet. Okay, and you might, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not trying to brag on myself. I just, last night my wife and I, we went to see a movie together and we wanted to have dinner and I forgot to call. You have to, you can do call ahead seating at Texas Roadhouse because I'd like to, you know, I like to have a steak. I like to take Christy out to a nice dinner. We ended up at Panera. And we had the half steak thing. Well, I had the full because it's delicious. And a cup of cheddar broccoli soup. And we sat in this little booth in Panera. And it, it was, it was wonderful. It was. I mean, it was just, it's just, it's her. God gave her to me. It's soup and bread. And it was just, it was, I loved it. And, and I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm, look, I'm a sinner. I'm not saying be like me. Don't be like me. <laughs> I'm saying that, that it, it was like God was, was showing, like, yes, that this, this, it's not, a, it's not a, like a, a platitude. Like, enjoy what you have. No, enjoy what you have. Tonight, if, if you go, I know some of you normally go to Perkins and have pie or have, man, enjoy it. Pie is a gift from God. It's just wonderful, right? It, it, all these things. This is literally the way to think as a believer. No, no, no. In that, you're, you're not missing something. It's not like, well, if our church had this or that, we'd be closer to the presence of God. No! Jesus has brought us as much into the presence of God as the church with a full band and a full choir and 60,000 people. That, like, it's, it's the same. The comparison to be made is, is who we're worshiping, not the elements of it, beloved. He loves you so much that He would give you joy in the good gifts if we would, but just listen and believe His Word. Again, there, there's not something here we need to tap into. It's simply, no, believe what I'm telling you. That's all the Bible's saying. Just believe me. It's there. God is there. Good friends, good job. Even, you know, even I, 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 I wonder how people that hate their job hear texts like this, because that's really hard. Like, if you hate your job to say, I'm, I'm supposed to rejoice in it. Well, I, I would say, although I'm not in that situation, so I don't want to, you know, be unfeeling to it. Just, just remember that joy can be found in that if, if, if we could see it through the grid of what God is doing and providing it for us, right? And again, I say that gently because, you know, I, I've, I've talked to some guys that are, that are minors and that job to me just seems so difficult. And the idea of, of going down and, you know, into the earth and being in there for, you know, 12, 14 hours, how do you, you know, I, I don't think they have bathrooms down there. Like, how do you find joy in that? And so it just... But the, I think the word of God is true. And think if God is so good that, that you can have joy down there, and, and that's what the Bible's telling us. Just, and again, it's not you have to practice these spiritual disciplines and then you'll feel this joy. Just God, help me to believe your word. That's the prayer to walk away with, beloved. That's the application. Just believe the word. God is there with you. And, and because God has purchased our salvation in Christ... Rather than being preoccupied with striving to do good enough to gain eternal life, you and I can be preoccupied with the Savior who has already bought and paid for it forever. Therefore, 
in these few years and few days that we live this vain life, enjoy everything you can. Everything that you have. So once more, I would say in light of the text, rest in Christ and enjoy His good gifts.